Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking with Connor Town O'Neill, who recently wrote Down Along with That Devil's Bones, A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy. Welcome, Connor. Hey, Christina. Good to be with you. I'm so glad you're here, and I understand that you have a special guest with you today. <laughs> That's right. Um, I have my my one-month-old daughter, Olive, uh, sitting in, in my arms while we do this. Um, and and she, she might hop in um, if she has anything to add to the, uh, to the discussion with the book, but she's snoozing right now. Well, we're glad Olive could join us. Um, I wonder if we could start by having you tell us about yourself. Sure. So my name's Connor O'Neill, and I'm a writer and a radio producer. Um, this, this book down along with that devil's bones is, is my first book. Uh, I've been working on it for about five and a half years now. So it's really, um, thrilling to have it out in the world, although it still feels a little bit strange that it doesn't just live on my computer anymore. Um, uh, I also work on the podcast white lies, uh, and I teach, uh, English and, uh, Excuse me. And I teach English and screenwriting at uh, Auburn University. And so that leads me to my next question, which was, what was your own educational path? Yeah, so um, I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I went to uh, uh, a public high school there, Penn Manor. Uh, and then from there went to uh, Vassar College, which is a, a small liberal arts college in upstate New York. Um and then I got a graduate degree in creative writing from the University of Alabama, um, and that's uh, it's at it's at the University of Alabama where I started uh, writing this book, um, and uh, then spent the the couple of years since I, I finished that that uh, master's degree um, pitching and and uh, luckily enough you know selling the the book and then and then writing it. <laughs> And so you wrote it as part of your MFA work. That's right. Yeah, it was. It 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 became my MFA thesis, which is actually it's kind of mind boggling to think about because I finished uh, I finished my degree at the University of Alabama in the spring of 2017, which means that I had a draft of this book uh, three months before the Unite the Right rally. Um, so, and you know thinking about things that happened in the, the later part of the book, it just hadn't happened yet. <laughs> so, so it's, it's taken a couple of rewrites since then, but, but yeah, um, uh, I, I, I finished at UA in May of 2017 and, you know, it was, uh, it was very much a first draft, very much a rough draft of the book. Um, there was still lots of reporting to be done, uh, but I had, I had wrapped, you know, the principal re- research and historical end of it. Um, but then in the years since, um, have, have gone back and, and reported stuff more deeply and, and covered the stuff that that's happened in the years since. 
So I've read the book. So for me, this is a logical question. So uh, no, I'm not throwing any shade, but why Alabama for graduate school? I had been writing about the American South for a couple of years before I decided to go to an MFA program. Uh, while I was in, uh, while I was studying in undergrad, I became really obsessed with sampling in hip hop, um, and you know the the ways that uh, producers were uh, taking and and remixing and recontextualizing old American music and making it new again. And, and, and just that, uh, that concept really floored me. Um, and I was really taken with it. Uh, and so that sort of sent me on this kind of reverse course through 20th century music. So funk, disco, jazz, soul, and then ultimately, um, uh, early blues music. Uh, and, and so I started writing about that and, um, while I was while I was at Vassar, I was working uh, with Kiese Lehman, who is a, a great writer from Mississippi, who was who was teaching at Vassar at the time, and he was really encouraging me to write about music, but was also really encouraging me to actually <laughs> go there. Um, and so he helped me get a grant that where I was riding buses around the Mississippi Delta, and it was my first time in the South. Uh, it was my first time doing a real reporting trip, um, and and that trip really sort of um, knocked the stuffing out of me in a, in a productive way, I think, but, um, really forced me to think about what it was that I was, why I loved the blues and, and for, for good and bad reasons and really getting a a wider sense of the, the culture, the, the politics, the life experiences, the, the sense of place that was informing, uh, that was informing that music. It just got me really fascinated with the South. Um, so over the next couple of years, I took a few more reporting trips there. Uh, during the Occupy Wall Street campaign, I traveled around the South again, um, sitting in with with different Occupy movements in a couple of different Southern cities. Um, and then, you know, after that trip, I really decided, you know, I think writing is what I want to do. It's it's really the only way that I can kind of make sense of the world and my place in it. So uh, I figured I, I, I wanted to really devote myself to writing and that if I was going to do that, I wanted to do it in the South because it was, like I said, you know, a place that I was really fascinated with and, and was interested in, in things that were happening there in the past and, and, and also in the present. Um, I kind of had this feeling that like if, if America was kind of, kind of get out of or, or really seek to address the, the crises that it's in, a lot of the productive work in that end was going to be happening in the South. And, and I had a kind of vague, I had that as a sort of vague feeling. And so I figured, you know, if that was going to happen, if I, if I thought that was true, I wanted to be there for it. Um, so I applied to really only, I really only applied to graduate schools uh, in the South and was accepted. And, um, I was accepted at the university of Alabama and it just seemed like a really great program, uh, really great nonfiction program specifically. Um, so it was kind of a no brainer. Um, and so I, and one of the, one of the really nice things about the university of Alabama, in addition to it being in the South, um, was that it, um, it offers four years. Some MFA programs are only two years. Um, but, but 
Alabama's is, is much longer. And so I had a lot of time to really apprentice as a writer, really get to know myself, have the time and the space and the support to do a lot of research and some travel. Um, so it was just, it was really, it was a really powerful experience. It was a really supportive experience. Um, and it's crazy to, th- you know, I wouldn't have been able to, to produce a, a book like this if I didn't have that time and that space um, that just I wouldn't have been afforded had I gone somewhere else. Yeah, when you're saying that it's a it's a nonfiction program, uh, creating a meaningful book length work of nonfiction in two years, plus just the acclimation space in the first semester or so of getting up to speed in an MFA program, it really only leaves you a year and change to try to write the yep. entire work. So I can see why you were intuitively looking for a longer program to to continue to have the ongoing mentoring and shaping. That's right. Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was just the perfect program for me. Um, and, and I think that those, some of the shorter programs really work for other people, different kinds of writers, writers at different points in their lives. Um, but, but that longer, um, that longer program certainly was, was perfect for me because really I only, <laughs> I only stumbled across this story and, uh, into the spring of my second year, I had been working on other projects up until that point. Um, so, so yeah, I would have been, you know, I would have been out before I had even really, you know, skimmed the surface of the research required for this book if, if I had so, only been there for two years. Yeah. So why don't you give listeners the elevator pitch for this book since we're referencing the book? Yeah. So the book is about, uh, it, it it's a work of journalism that covers campaigns to remove uh, monuments dedicated to the Confederate general Nathan Bedford Forrest in four cities across the American South. So in the years after the the Charlottesville nine murders, as these campaigns um, are aimed at Confederate symbols, flags, uh, and, and monuments broke out, I, I covered those aimed at Forrest specifically. So there's a, a story in Selma, Alabama, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Nashville, and and Memphis, and uh, it it's about each of the monuments in those cities and the battles over whether they're going to stay up. Uh, it dips into some biography of Forrest and some Civil War history, um, but also it uses that history as a lens for looking at the last five years in in America. Were you? working while you were a student? Because you reference in the book that you were reporting on the monuments. Were you working as a journalist at the time as well as being in school? Yeah, I was freelancing a little bit, um, you know, just sort of uh, following stories as they as they came up. Um, I had published my, actually I published my first story on the day of uh, the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, which is the attack uh, by Alabama police officers on civil rights demonstrators uh, on Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge back in 1965. Um, I I had written an essay about the design of that bridge and how it became a sort of symbol for the civil rights movement. Um, And that was really my first, uh, that was my first published piece. Um, And that that had gone live uh, on Slate the, the morning of that anniversary. And I was in Selma that morning to to do some more reporting on that anniversary. And that's where I stumbled across this story for the first time. So yeah, I was really just kind of getting my legs as a, as a working journalist, as, um, as I started uh, working on this story. And how you stumbled across the story is very vividly 
uh, explained in the book. Can you set the scene of that for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, like I said, it's the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. President Obama was there. This is 2015, so it's it's getting into the the end of his second term in office. But he was there to deliver a speech and to cross over the bridge in remembrance. Um, and and just as a uh, an aside, that he delivered an, a pretty amazing speech that day. Um, I, I think one of his best, and and certainly one of the best presidential speeches in, in recent memory, and it's worth looking up. Um, but anyway, so I think people expecting him to, you know, really, um, uh, really provide a, a, a thoughtful reflection on that day. 40,000 other people showed up to hear that speech too. Uh, and Selma is a pretty small city. Um, so, you know, 40,000 extra people showing up really kind of flooded uh, downtown. And, and so when I show up, you know, like I said, I'm a, I'm a poor graduate student. I'm a broke graduate student at the time. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of scouring for free parking and it occurs to me, Oh yeah, Selma's got one of these cemeteries. That's a very sort of classic old South Magnolias, Spanish moss, mausoleums, its own system of roads. Uh, so <laughs> I decide, Oh, I'll just like go into the cemetery and stash my car somewhere. And, you know, it's true. I did actually find some free parking there, but I also found way more than I bargained for, too. Uh, So in that cemetery is also a a has a Confederate section where some Confederate soldiers are buried. There are a couple of monuments there, you know, a big cannon. Um, And I look over to that part of the cemetery and there are a bunch of signs that say Confederate Memorial Circle closed. Do not trespass. And a couple of people sort of standing at the edge of 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 that section scowling at me. Um, and you know, that's, uh, it was a little bit intimidating, but it was also, that's kind of catnip for, for a reporter. So I wander over and just, you know, engage them. What are you doing here? Are you guys standing guard? Like what's, what's the deal? Um, and they tell me this long story, uh, about how, basically for the la- the better part of the last two decades, they had been fighting about this monument of Nathan Bedford Forrest that they had put up. And putting up a, a, a statue of Forrest, who was a slave trader, uh, a an accused war criminal, the first Grand Wizard of the Klan, <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that would be controversial anywhere. And it is, and it, it is everywhere he is, he's, it's controversial. Um, but to do it in Selma, which is the sort of synonymous with black voting rights, uh, the city that gave the world the vote, um, it was, you know, that just sort of compounded the injury. And then it, it turns out that that statue had first gone up in two, in the fall of 2000. So one, not in like, you know, the aftermath of the world war, but 150 years later and the same week that the city had inaugurated its first black mayor. So it was just this enormously controversial statue. That statue was eventually stolen, uh, but its theft only sparked a new fight about whether this group, the Friends of Forest, was going to be able to uh, replace that statue. And so by the time I meet them in the spring of 2015, they were fresh off a victory in federal court that was going to allow them to uh, to put up a new statue of force. So they were there that day, I found out, um, basically sort of preparing the grounds and getting ready for this unveiling of their new forest statue. And the, the dissonance of that experience, being there, 
thinking about the civil rights movement, the sacrifices and the bravery and the violence of that era, um, but then also having the first black president in town, it was really easy to think about that day, you know, in terms of optimism, in terms of progress, you know, the, the symbol of the bridge of, of crossing over, um, sort of escaping our history or transcending our history. Um, all of that was completely put to bed <laughs> by this encounter that I had with, with these neo-Confederates. Uh, so I was left that day, one, just kind of wondering who Nathan Bedford Forrest was. I wasn't, didn't really grow up on a lot of Civil War lore, um, but also wondering what it meant to put up a monument to him uh, and, to do, and to do it in 2015. So uh, that, that day, that experience really stuck with me. I started to do some research on it, um, followed along as they unveiled their new monument. Um, and then just a couple weeks after that monument, that new monument went up, uh, the Charleston nine murders happened. And this, it, this, what felt for a little while was this sort of obscure, uh, you know, bit of like public history and, you know, civil war history, uh, essay that I was working on, uh, suddenly exploded into a real national referendum. So I so I started to, you know, uh, digging in much more and following stories in other cities too. But it all it all goes back to that day on the fiftieth anniversary of Bloody Sunday. And the book is really you unpacking what the heck that moment was, where you were just trying to park your car, <laughs> and you you find out really that the world is not what you thought it was. Um, and as you try to work through the meaning of what you've encountered and, and what it means both for the South, um, for all of the things named after Forrest and for the people who are wounded by that, you, you also go on a journey of understanding what it means for you to be white, something you hadn't really had to look at before. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think for, for most of my life, I, I operated on a lot of sort of received wisdom about how race works in America um, and, and just, you know, mostly sort of taking whiteness to be the kind of norm or like the the stock photo. Like it, it, it is um, we're encouraged to if I can generalize, <laughs> we're sort of encouraged growing up. White Americans are encouraged to just kind of take it as the the norm that there that it just is um there's there's nothing to see here um and that and that race insofar as it's a problem uh is a problem for black people it's a problem for them and it's a problem for them to solve and luckily brave men like you know martin luther king stood up and marched and and helped us solve this problem um you know and it, and it, it wasn't very <laughs> self-reflexive about the ways that race was has and does shape my life um and, and, and what whiteness is and where it came from and um, how it how it operates and how it works to sort of uh, forward power, resources, wealth, um, all of these things that it's convenient for, for, for white Americans to think we've sort of earned on our own um, and don't have to interrogate too much. But, but like you say, the, the, the process of working on this book had prompted me to really um, dig into it, uh, you know, and, and to see that there is no... There's no biological basis for, for whiteness. It is this, it is, it's, it's a political identity and political, not, you know, democratic or Republican, but political and sort of how power is organized. That whiteness is, is an invented concept and uh, a way of affording um, opportunities to 
you know, pale skinned Europeans. And that, of course, that group is going to shift over time uh, and has shifted over time. Um, but but I have fallen squarely within it and have have even if only passively and for for a while unwittingly, you know, um, experienced the benefits of that of that hoarding of that racial hierarchy of this country. Um, but but yeah, so looking at Civil War history, looking at the history of forest, looking at what these monuments meant, um, it, it became impossible after a while to do that and not understand my place in this, that I had a stake in these debates too. And so um, the course of reporting this also prompted a lot of self-reflection and understanding myself in the context of this country and, and the the the, the racial hierarchy that we have and the, the often violent ways that that hierarchy is enforced. And other things that you confronted were sort of this North-South divide that you thought maybe the nation had, um, that because you grew up in the North, um, a lot of these issues were something you could learn about, but that you didn't really have to. Um, and sort of the divide of what was pre-Civil War and was post-Civil War is, is too tidy. Um, and you, you really unpack more and more of this as you go through the book to say that if we bring it down to a Civil War issue, then it's easy to moralize the winner or the loser to take a, take a, a stance on that. But when you began truly trying to understand who Forrest was and why anybody still cared, you realized all the things that you hadn't seen, that streets were named after him, that his likeness was pinned up in the bulletin board of the coffee shop that you frequented, that <laughs> his name was on schools, monuments, statues, counties, cities. His face was on T-shirts. Um, and as you began to realize that he was everywhere, you wrote on page eight, in his symbolic afterlife, Forest haunts the landscape. And the book is really you trying to understand the depth of that haunting and what it's doing to people. And that led you, as you say, to four different um, places to look at um, what was going on with monument battles. And one that I think will really um, resonate with listeners is the battle that was going on on the MTSU campus over Forest Hall. Could you talk us talk to us about what led you there and, and what you found out. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the aftermath of the Charleston Eye murders, um, after Dylan Roof was arrest- arrested in Charleston, uh, it, be- it images from his blog started to circulate and it became clear that he had taken this uh, almost sightseeing tour around South Carolina, going to slave memorials, Civil War sites, plantations, cemeteries, um, and almost in a way to sort of steal himself, uh, for, uh, the act of terrorism that he was, he would then go on to commit. Um, so it it was those images that really prompted this referendum on, on Confederate imagery and symbols. Uh, and one of the, one of the campaigns that it inspired that summer was on the campus of Middle Tennessee State University, uh, that has a building named after Forrest on campus. The the ROTC building there is is known as Forest Hall. And so uh, that academic year, 2015-2016 academic year, students on campus there uh, led a, a protest movement to try and get the school to change that name. 
And the school decided that they were going to form a task force to uh, weigh this decision if they were going to uh, keep the name, change the name, or keep the name with uh, added historical context. And they held three forums across that academic year um, where they heard from all comers. They heard they took they heard testimony from students. They heard testimony from professors, from community members, um, and it was really just it, it, it was a really polarizing. Um, uh, oftentimes upsetting, frustrating, uh, and and kind of ultimately futile battle <laughs> about how Americans should remember Forrest. It was, so there were very clear sort of pro uh, keep the name and and change the name camps, and they just kind of went back and forth. These forums were organized in a sort of tit for tat manner. So p- someone who wanted to change the name would get up and speak for two minutes. Someone who wanted to um, someone who disagreed would stand up and speak for two minutes and they would just go back and forth for hours. Um, and this dragged on all year. And so it, it, ra- it, it became a, a, a way covering that story became a looking, a way of looking at a couple of really interesting things that were happening at the time. One, a, a really increased political polarization, uh, in the country. This is the moment of black lives matter. Um, but also a, a nascent Trump campaign. So you have the sort of make America great again that that has one view of history um, in which, you know, there are sort of good old days, um, uh, the politics of white grievance at work. Um, and then on the other hand, um, people that really, uh, people that want to hold America accountable to its past and to understand how that past of, of segregation, of lynching, of slavery, um, it continues to to shape the American present, and that we we need to be responsible and accountable to that. Um, and and those two camps just sort of went to war over Forrest. Um, so it, it exposed this political polarization, but it was also one of many on campus campaigns that were happening that year, uh, trying to get universities specifically to be more responsible for the racial environment on campus. This. You might remember this is the year where there are massive protests at the University of Missouri, uh, a graduate student on hunger strike, the football team threatening not to not to play uh, big protests at Yale, Princeton, University of North Carolina, uh, University of Texas at Austin, just sort of across the country. Um, there are these um, real referendums on who's being honored at these schools, uh, what that honoring means for students on campus then. Um I think it was put most succinctly by a, a student at MTSU who said at one of these forums that they wouldn't they would find an alternate path through campus because they didn't want to be reminded that the school was honoring someone who didn't think they were a human while they were walking to Nineham Biology, um, and I thought that really captured something essential about the the debate that was happening at Middle Tennessee about Forrest, but also happening more broadly and about how young, young black Americans were, were, you know, um, really advocating for, uh, insisting that these universities that they were paying tuition to attend, um, actually do something to address the really toxic racial climate that was, um, that was happening on these campuses. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a ton to unpack too about the school, um, and how over the over s- decades it had been um, using Confederate imagery 
and uh, images of forests specifically. Back in the 60s, uh, there was actually a student who would dress up as forest as the, the school's mascot and ride a horse up and down the sidelines of uh, the football games. Um, but really, as soon as the school integrates, there are um, the students of color really challenging the use of that imagery, the use of those symbols, the band playing Dixie, um, the 700-pound the bronze medallion of forest that hangs outside the student center. Um, so, it, you know, as, basically, as long as there have been black students on campus, um, there have been protest movements to try and change uh, or remove these, these Confederate symbols. And uh, then finally, in 2015, 2016, the last symbol left on campus was Forest Hall. So this was like the sort of last battle over forest at MTSU. Um, and, you know, they, even though a lot of the students had grown cynical and, and, and weary over the course of that year and over the course of that protest campaign, um, the lead, one of the leaders of the movement actually published a letter in the local paper saying all students should, all all black students should transfer to HBCUs, um, because they had just sort of had it with MTSU and them dragging their feet, uh, about the, the name of this building, because to them, it felt like a bad faith debate. Um, they didn't, as, as the, one of the leaders of the movement, uh, Joshua Crutchfield said to me, you know, we don't think racism should be debated at this point. Um, and, and the fact that the school had gone about it in such a lengthy, um, polarizing way, um, just sort of underscored to them the extent to which they felt unwelcome there. Um, anyway, uh, so they had grown pretty cynical about the whole process, but the school actually did end up um, deciding that the, the name should change, but the school would, would wasn't the last uh, group that that was going to weigh in on this. They had to then go to the board of regents that oversees the school uh, and get their permission. The board of regents actually came to agree: yes, this name should be changed. Um, but there's a law in Tennessee, the Heritage Preservation Act. <laughs> that um, requires the state's historical commission to approve any, you know, name change with historical, that has historical relevance. Uh, and then that law was strengthened to require a supermajority of the, um, of the historical commission to approve it. Um, that, that law, the Heritage Protection Act, has sort of jokingly been referred to as the Nathan Bedford Forest Protection Act because there are so many symbols of forest in Tennessee. Anyway, the school had to go before the historical commission to appeal, um, to them to get permission to change the name of forest hall and the commission denied their application. So forest hall remains forest hall. It was flabbergasting that section of the book, how many levels of approval it took when the school itself had decided Yes, it's time to change the name after the students had done such a tremendous amount of work. And you you take us to that gruesome ping pong uh, version of the hearing where, as you said, people talk for two minutes on one side and two minutes on the other and then back to two minutes on the opposing side. And it just must have been so gruesome for the students to sit there um, to basically have every key point they make immediately negated by an opposing voice. And yet the school does come to the point where they say, all right, we can change the name. And yet there's like four other levels of bureaucracy to wade through before, before that can happen. And 
You referenced a moment ago Joshua Crutchfield and his op-ed to the local uh, Daily News Journal. And in the book, you quote him as saying, in this op-ed, we don't have to beg institutions to be included, and we don't have to be where we're not wanted. And those sentences really summed up what you just shared about what it's like for someone to be on campus confronted daily by these artifacts of oppression. Um, I wonder if you could also introduce us to um, another person who you spoke with while you were there doing the research, Sylvester Brooks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mentioned that there is, uh, there's a, a, a much longer history of the uh, university's uh, uh, entanglement <laughs> with Forrest and, and uh, images of the Confederacy. And um, uh, Sylvester Brooks was a, a student at MTSU, um, one of the one of the first Black students to um, to attend MTSU. He was one of, in, in one of the first cohorts after the school had integrated in the '60s, um, and he uh, led the first wave of of protests to try and get MTSU to change um, or remove these these Confederate symbols on campus. Um, he told me this story about going to his first football game and just being encountered with, um, with all of this, you know, sort of carnival of the Confederacy. There are frat boys, you know, with like Confederate vests. There's the band playing Dixie, people waving Confederate flags in the, the mascot, of course, on horseback riding up and down the, the side of the, uh, side of the field in, you know, the, the gray wool of the Confederacy. Um, it, it was just it, it was it was shocking to him, um, but he he was a um, he was sort of a born activist. He had grown up uh, in Memphis, uh, had marched uh, as a teenager, had received death threats from the Klan as a teenager. Even he he told me that his mom kept a, a scrapbook of his activism, and he he would text me uh, photos that that she would send him from it, you know, so I got to read this, this death threat that a member of the clan had sent this 17 year old. Uh, and, and so his, his story one, I think really laid out, um, in a really eloquent and moving way, uh, why these, uh, why these symbols were so antithetical to what, you know, uh, what needed to be done, the, the issues that America needed to face, you know, he, he talks about, you know, building this new future, the, the, the university and really the country living up to the ideals that it was professing of, of liberty and freedom and equality. Um, and, and pointing out that these symbols that the school was using were completely antithetical to that. And that were, uh, about dehumanizing black people and about, um, you know, holding on to the old ways, um, the old ways of, of, of exploitation and violence and, and, and this racial hierarchy that people were clinging to so so tightly um he was saying there's a new you know we can find a new way to be we can find a new way to organize this university to organize this country um and to to live up to these ideals that, that we for so long claimed um and so he led this movement he wrote letters he was you know uh, organizing appealing to the student government um and was finally successful um at, or at least somewhat successful he managed to convince the uh, university to stop uh, have the band stop playing Dixie as the fight song and to uh, let go of Forrest as a mascot. Um, but 
you know, the, this massive bronze medallion of Forrest stayed up uh, in front of the student center. And of course, um, oh, sorry, Ozzy is stirring. Um, and of course, Forest Hall remained Forest Hall. Um, so, so yeah, it was really, uh, sorry. It's okay. We, we have her as our guest. We have to tend to her needs too. Okay. You're okay. Um, but yeah, so, um, one of the things though, that was underscored uh, talking to Sylvester Brooks is that in one way or another, this school has been fighting the same fight for half a century. Um, you know, as long as there had been students of color on campus, they had been fighting this fight over what it means to honor Forrest. Um, and, and, and the school couldn't completely square to it or own up to what it was that they were doing when they were honoring Forrest. Um, and and who was affected by it. And the journalist in you really sought out people from different walks of life to try to understand how pervasive the history of these monuments are for people and why anybody could still be fighting to keep them. And one of the people that you met was Stephen Murphy, mm-hmm. um, who is the chaplain of the... Um, Sons of Confederate Veterans, um, and he even celebrates Forrest's birthday. Can you tell us about meeting him and and how listening to him added in pieces to this complex story that you wouldn't have had otherwise? Yeah, you're right. I I, I really did approach this story as a journalist and, and wanting to understand um, wanting to understand why we were still fighting this fight. Um, I had my own ideas about why what Forrest represented was, you know, horrific or abhorrent or, you know, antithetical to the kind of country I want to live in. Um, but I didn't totally understand why he was still with us uh, and why people were willing to really go to the mattresses for him 150 years after the war had ended. So, so yeah, so I sought out, um, I sought out people in, uh, in, in Murfreesboro and the surrounding areas, uh, who were, who wanted that building to stay Forest Hall. Of course, these forums made that really easy because they would come and testify. Um, and then they be, you know, they became easier to find that way. Um, but yeah, so, um, talking with Steve Murphy, I think was really important in helping me understand, um, a lot of the deeper issues at play, both with Forest, but also in general, how white Americans think about our past and how, it should teach us to understand our present. So, it's, so talking to Murphy, and like you said, they he celebrates Forrest's birthday. They eat the meal that he that Forrest ate when he led a raid through Murfreesboro and saved some prominent members of the town um, who were set for execution when the when Murfreesboro was briefly under Union control during the war. Um, it was a pretty minor raid, all things considered, um, but. People love Forrest and and take <laughs> any any reason to celebrate him. So this raid that he led through Murfreesboro is is cast in very uh, you know heroic terms. Um, so they mark they they eat the the sweet potatoes and black pe- black eyed peas that that he ate that night after the raid um, as a way of you know honoring him and his bravery, I suppose. Um, but but one of the things that Murphy told me that was really uh, important. And, and really useful in understanding that the deeper stakes of this debate was that he, he was saying, you know, 
in reference to that, them eating the same meal that that Forrest ate, he said, you know, some people might think we're overly we're being overly romantic, um, but we're just trying to protect the Confederate soldier's good name. And I found that really a revealing quote because I think in you can really extrapolate out a lot from that. I think that is how a lot of us are taught to regard our history, that we have American exceptionalism, this idea that we're the greatest nation in the world and by dint of our exposed values of freedom and liberty and justice that, you know, we're sort of distinguished amongst the nations of the world. Um, and, and one of the things that that American exceptionalism holds is that we're kind of entitled to a happy history, a good history, a history that flatters us, um, that there are, you know, brave men who, who built this country and, and whose ideals, you know, guided us to this, um, you know, uh, utmost moral standing in the world. Um, and so it, that sort of puts blinders on us and it, it, we can't possibly have a history that might ask something of us or might hold us accountable to something or, or might be something that has caused a lasting injury and that might require, you know, redressing. Um, so if, if we're only looking at history as a way of protecting the good name of the past, um, we're never really going to understand where we came from and thus never really understand who we are. Uh, and if we can't understand who we are, then we're never really going to be able to change. And we're going to keep fighting these battles <laughs> like the ones that we're fighting right now over Forrest. Um, so so that was a really helpful conversation, um, understanding the kind of ideology that that undergirds um, uh, undergirds some of this debate. And, and, and that couldn't be made more clear than than in Murfreesboro, where there are uh, there's a sign that marks where Forrest took a nap before this raid through through downtown Murfreesboro. Um, there are play on the courthouse square, there are a bunch of markers that that document Forrest's heroic raid. There's a statue of the Confederate soldier at the corner of the courthouse square. You know, all of this sort of hagiography and um you know honor honorifics to the brave men like Forrest. Um who's Tennessee's legendary soldier, as one person described him to me. Um, but what goes unmarked is also um, just as important part of understanding the legacy of the Civil War uh, off w- off of one corner of the square, actually the corner where the, the Confederate soldier is looking, the statue of the Confederate soldier is looking, um, is where the slave market used to stand. And there's no marker that um, that shows that that's what that building used to be. I, it was, you know, spent a long time in the uh, Heritage Center. They're trying to find exactly where the slave market was. Um, and I think that that juxtaposition, what, what's remembered and, and, thus, and, and then the flip side of that, what's forgotten, I think um, is, is important to keep in mind. So the Confederacy was making no secret about why they were seceding and what they were fighting for. Um, Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander H. Stevens, talked about, you know, that slavery was the cornerstone of the Confederacy. The Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, talked about um, how they justified slavery because the men and women that they were enslaving were inherently inferior, um, stamped by their creator is the um, is the phrase that he used. Um, so 
and and of course, uh, many of the, the Confederate soldiers fighting in the war were fighting to protect a sort of um, that racial hierarchy, even that sort of psychological sense of superiority that they had, because they were living in a system that was tilting the board in their favor. Um, whether or not they themselves owned slaves, they existed in a system in which slavery existed um, and was existing to their benefit, uh, to their higher you know, standing in the hierarchy. Um, so it was th- this idea of uh, protecting slavery, expanding slavery into the frontier was absolutely the, the reason for the war um, and the motivation for the fighting of the war. Um, and yet that goes totally unmarked in, in, in downtown Murfreesboro. And to, to go back to the, the thing that uh, Stephen Murphy told me, you know, to protect the Confederates' good name, you can't you can't think about just how ghastly, how how morally bankrupt the the spiritual and physical torture of slavery, um, and also all of the wealth that was extracted from from that slave system that was enriching people not just in the North but banks in New York, factories in Boston. Um, you know, it, it it as the historian Edward Baptist makes clear in his book the half has never been told like slavery is the system by which American capitalism is developed. It's the way that we become this, um, this, our economy becomes a a behemoth in the world is through this slave system. So anyway, all of that to say, um, yeah, there's this, there's this dance of sort of remembering and forgetting that that is happening with, um, public images, uh, public symbols of the Confederacy that once you, once you look into, you, you realize that like, we have such a naive sense of what our the the purpose of our history and what our actual history is. Um, but when you look at it, when you look at it closely, you realize that there is no <laughs> there's no good name to protect, and really that the Confederate history is fits into a larger context of American history that is also predicated on this idea of uh, you know black inferiority and promoting policies that that work to the benefit of white Americans and at the expense of black Americans. So, you know, it's hard to defend anyone's good name when you really start to look into our history and without the the sort of rose tinted glasses that American exceptionalism offers to us. Um, and maybe that's a good thing. You know, we should get over this naive view of our history and, and, and let history hold us accountable to the, the injustices and the injuries that have been, um, that have happened and, and let them, you know, let them hold us accountable to them in the present. Um, and, and yeah, the, so even in just the, the, the very geography of, of Murfreesboro, um, I was, I was being taught these lessons about how memory worked about, you know, how the past shapes the present, um, and how the, how the Confederate symbols fit into all of that. I know you're running short on time. So there's just one more person I want to take a few minutes to ask you about, because we're talking about um, the tensions between collective memory and history. Um, And someone who's deeply working on that was a woman you met named Sarah Calise. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us about her project and how it fits into the narrative of this book? Yeah, absolutely. So Sarah is an archivist at Middle Tennessee State, uh, and she was incredibly instrumental to the the research and and the reporting of this book. Um, She she thinks of herself as sort of part archivist and part 
protester. So she was a, she was a, a graduate student at the time uh, that this protest movement happened on campus. And so she w- participated in it, but was also documenting it too. At the same time, she was sort of making, she was building an archive in real time. And I thought that was a really interesting, um, a really interesting project. Um, but then she went way back. She was asking questions, not just about what's happening in the present and trying to document that, um, but looking back into the university's past and try asking questions about where these symbols come from and what they meant and, and why they were being used. Um, and so, you know, going through the archive with her and looking through, um, you know, speeches, imagery and letterheads, photographs from old homecomings and, you know, frat parties and football games and looking through old yearbooks with her, just really, really getting a, a, a very um, textured sense of, of this history and, and the, the long connection that the school has with with Forrest and, and with the Confederacy was was really eye-opening and important. Um, I'm really grateful to Sarah for, for all the, the great work that she's done and, and for sharing that with me. This is a, an amazing book, and we've only had time to talk about just one of the four cities that you went to. So uh, when listeners get a copy of the book, they'll see there's a lot more to uh, unpack and, and get into when they read it. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you in the few minutes we had left is, what do you hope this book sparks? It's hmm. a great question. I hope writing that, it changed you. Yeah, I hope that this book sparks. I hope this book helps more of us get to. Let me take that again. I hope this book helps get us to a common understanding of our past that is rooted in the legacy of slavery and the lies that Americans have told to justify that system. Because even though the Civil War, the main consequence of the Civil War was the emancipation of enslaved Americans, the lie that we were telling ourselves to justify that just dastardly inhumane system uh, perpetuated long after uh, the war was over. Um, that that sense of that lie of black inferiority and that lie of white supremacy um, went on to be, you know, enshrined through um, Supreme Court cases, through redlining, through the social who was eligible for the Social Security Act the GI Bill, FHA loans, um, how schools are funded, how schools are zoned. I mean, just in in every area of life, there are these policies that are meant to, or in effect, allow for the hoarding of resources for some people at the expense of others. And so what I hope that this book can do is get us to a common understanding of the past of, of the American past and, and the real injuries uh, that that have taken place in our past. And if we can have a, 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 a solid grounding in a sense that our history doesn't need to flatter us, but that instead should hold us accountable. If we can get to that point, then we might be closer to getting a consensus for the really, you know, drastic policy changes that need to happen in this country, you know, in the 11th hour, though it may be, you know, we, we have massive work to do to 
um, close a racial wealth gap that stands at 10 to 1 right now. Um, make sure that everyone has a- access to good health care, to good education, that we can find a way of, you know, giving people jobs and addressing the climate crisis. Like this is these are massive, massive um you know, programs and policies on the left that are going to need, um, you know, a, a consensus building to happen. And I think if we can understand what the the things that have happened in our past that have led us to this moment, we can stand a better shot of getting some consensus for addressing these lasting injuries. Um, so <laughs> that's a pretty lofty ideal, I know. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I don't flatter myself to think that it's this one book will do it, but it, hopefully it's a it's a small step in that direction. Um, just a, a, a long, hard look at our past and, and understanding how that past has shaped our present. And it's an honest look at your own reckoning, too, when you ask yourself throughout the book, what debts do you owe to your own whiteness? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and in that way, I hope it can be, I hope it can be an instructive book. I, I, my journey can sort of act as a surrogate for a lot of other people who are asking themselves those same questions right now. You know, it prompted me to look at things like how my parents were able to buy their house, you know, the, the sorts of mortgages that they were eligible. That, of course, has to do with their race, um, the neighborhoods that they could buy a house in, and thus what schools they could send their kids to, how, you know, me and my brothers were understood uh, by our teachers, by police officers, um, how we were able to get loans co-signed to go to college because they had the backing of this mortgage. You know, all of these different ways that are that are subtle, but of course hinge on on our race. Um, and we might be j- only passively participating in these systems, but they're still shaping our lives. You know, I, that was one of the real revelations of the book is that I I might renounce everything that the Confederacy stood for, everything that Forrest fought for. But because they were fighting to maintain this American system of white supremacy, they were fighting for me. And I needed to understand myself and my life in the context of this this racial hierarchy that is really, you know, a, 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 a way of hoarding resources and opportunities that, that I had availed myself of. Um, and that's not uh, that's not to be self-flagellating. That's not to induce some kind of self-loathing or shame, but just to understand myself in the context of this country, to understand the lines on which I was building my life. I was taking advantage of policies, systems, um, long-standing policies and systems that were providing me with all of these opportunities. And to say that race didn't have a role in that would would be to you know pull the wool firmly down over my eyes. Um, so, so yeah, it's just, you know, it's just another way of holding yourself accountable, understanding how power in this country works, how opportunities in this country work. Um, and, and we will never hope to be another way. We'll never hope to address the inequities in that, in those systems, if we can't be honest about how they work on, on an individual level, as well as on a more, um, structural level. So, so yeah, there were a ton of personal revelations here that this reporting prompted. And, and like I said, I hope that, I hope that other people who are, who are going on similar journeys right now can, can find stuff that resonates with them. And I think one of the things the book does is, uh, surprise people that that journey is necessary. It seemed to catch you by surprise. One of the things I was struck by is that you were able to move safely about throughout the South. Mm. Um, and that's not something that, for example, a female student could take for granted. 
Um, it's not something um, a trans student could take for granted. And it's certainly not something a student of color who suddenly moved to the South would um, assume to be a given that they could move about freely, particularly to contentious spaces, which is something that you were able to, and I'll assume you are safe because you're still here, um, <laughs> that you were able to willingly uh, do and, and get through with enough safety. For sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's a, that's a, that's a great point. And it, and it's one that, um, I really took for granted, especially early on in reporting, but again, sort of came to see through the process of digging into these stories. Um, yeah, absolutely. That I could, I could move, I could move with safety because, because of who I am and how I'm understood in, in the way that this, this country works and who it protects and who it, who it makes vulnerable. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, um, and, and I tried, I tried not to take it for granted and I tried to actually use it as, um, as a sort of uh, a way of guiding the work after a while. Once, once I came to some of these epiphanies, naive as they may sound, um, once I, once I started to realize, you know, <laughs> my own subject position in, in the, in the context of this country and in the places where I was reporting, um, one, I tried to n- not make it a given, but but to under- understand my point of view on this. But then to to then realize that yes, I could do this safely, and people would talk to me who might not talk to other people. And then to sort of take that on, it's like okay, well, if you're going to talk to me, then then this is my work to do. You know, uh, understanding that this is you know, white people <laughs> have for so long felt like it's not their responsibility to talk about race. Um, but again, you know, as a white person, I've tried to take that on. Um, as my responsibility to not let that be the problem of, um, you know, black Americans to try and save white people from this horrific and violent system that we've enacted. Um, but, but instead to, to, to talk about it myself, to, to, to understand it as to understand the problem of race in this country as a a problem made by white people for the advantages of white people. So, so to understand myself in, in that, in that system and in a, a not very flattering position in that system. Um, but then to, you know, take on the responsibility of talking about it, documenting how it operates and, you know, analyze how it operates as a way of, you know, getting more people to see it and, and to hopefully find ways of, of undoing it. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like people, and because people would talk to me, I felt all the more, you know, responsibility to go out and talk to people. And that had to do with my whiteness, but you're right. It also had to do with the fact that I'm a cisgendered straight guy. And that, you know, a lot of people who would be hostile to talking to other people wanted to talk to me because they thought they could give me the hard sell and might convert me, you know, because I think it felt self-evident to them. Like, Oh, of course you should like this dude. We're, we're doing this for your benefit. Um, um, so I don't mean to be flip about that, but, but I think that that was, um, um, that was certainly one of the forces that was shaping the reporting. Um, and it was, like you said, I think it was important to be, to be conscious of it and, and know that it was, uh, because of the particulars of my identity, it was sort of my work to do. This is really a fascinating book and a fascinating journey that you went on. Um, one of the quotes that I think sums up this conversation that we've had today really well is a person you spoke with, uh, who told you that the, the forest statues represented a symbol of everything we are fighting every day. Mm. And that's how I think that that's a really poignant quote. And it, it really, um, 
illustrates the the depth of the things that are being fought every day still um, in our country. Um, Thank you so much for being here today, Connor. We've been talking about Down Along with That Devil's Bones, A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You're listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.